0: Okay, please join me in a word of prayer and we'll get to our text. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, thank You again for Your your wonderful grace. We can truly reflect on the fact that You are a wonderful, merciful Savior and that You give us everything we need. Thank You for taking care of us Thank you for your abiding mercies on us, that though we live in difficult times, that you are always our counselor, comforter, and keeper. You love us faithfully. And Lord, we would pray that as your Spirit does its work in transforming our hearts, that we would also be found faithful, and that we would love and desire you above all things. Pray that you would be with us this morning, give us wisdom to understand your scriptures. That you would do the work of giving us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand. That we would come and bow before you and uh, see ourselves increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. We are continuing to talk about. Marriage, yes. Marriage is what brings us together today. And just so you know, we are plunging the depths. We really are. I, I want us to really be blessed by this study. And so, given the, the breadth of what we are covering today, um, some of it may seem a little disjointed. I've done my best to sort of outline it so we kind of have a, a logical flow Especially of what it means or what it looks like for a man to love his wife as Christ has loved the church, Um, and so as time goes on, we still want to try to put some of these pieces together. There's just there's just so much there's so much from Scripture that I think is is there to bless us and to inform us and to strengthen our faith and men to equip you to be excellent lovers of your wives. Um, and, and, and yes, there is a difficulty in bringing all of this together. So, like I said, if you guys ever want to uh, brush up on some of this stuff or, or talk about it in greater depth or you need more details, obviously when I'm up here, I can't qualify everything. I have to preach the Word of God. That's what I am assigned to do. And so you can't always back up two steps and say, okay, now when I say that, I mean this or that. Um, so in some sense, you're going to have to give me the benefit of the doubt so I can be thorough, but also want to also uh, give you the benefit of the doubt when it comes to any follow-up questions uh, you may have, and I want to be able to uh, open my home to do that. So uh, Katie and I would, she's looking at me like, we are? Yes, we are. Um, We would love to open our homes (laughs) in the afternoon to you guys if you want to come over and spend some time with us, uh, especially as long as we uh, are in this study. And let's just say that starts today today. so uh, if that's something of interest to you, please, please let us know. Uh, I think we both enjoy talking about marriage and, and uh, really refreshing ourselves with all the blessings that are contained therein. So um, I, I think we can continue to uh, see iron sharpening iron and uh, go forward in faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit as we enjoy this grace of life together. Uh, so with that, we can open our study today and we will be really going off of the same Three passages we did last Lord's Day. That is Colossians chapter three, Ephesians five, which will be the primary passage. And then, of course, first Peter chapter three, all of which contain duties both for husbands and wives and their relationship to one another, specifically in the confines of a distinctively Christian marriage. That's how scripture instructs us. We want to, we want to embrace not simply traditional marriage, but Christian marriage. That's what I want to see for us. Christ-honoring, Christ-glorifying marriages where we are obedient to our individual callings that incidentally mesh into one as men and women. But of course, we address the men first, and we've spent already about three some odd weeks in underscoring God's high calling to men as head of the household and as Lovers of their wives. And so we got specifically into men loving their wives uh, last Lord's Day, and we're going to continue in that study. Continue in that study this morning. Um, and so as I was reflecting on this before we start reading any texts, it's interesting how men loving their wives as Christ has loved his church fits into the overall biblical meta-narrative. Uh, one of my greatest enjoyments as a student of Scripture is biblical theology. And biblical theology, more or less, is the study of the the development of certain themes from Genesis to the book of Revelation. It's amazing how these things all fit together. I would say biblical theology is even more profound than systematic theology, and most of us are familiar with that. But I was thinking of this issue of of cutting. It was brought to my attention by a well-known teacher, but I kind of looked in Scripture to see how this theme of cutting is developed. It's really interesting. It's really interesting also to see how marriage fits into this, especially when it comes to loving our wives. So pay attention here. We first see division in the opening chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. We see God doing some cutting. He divides light from darkness. He says, let there be light, and there was light. So it was. So he divided the light from the darkness, and of course we know the story. Darkness is night, the light is he calls day. Well, then God does more cutting. He cuts the waters above from the waters below. So we have the oceans, and then we have this vapor or water canopy, depending on who who you're reading. But he divides water from water. And then as the narrative continues, God cuts again. He cuts the water below from the land, and so dry land appears. And on and on, creation continues. And then a very fascinating thing appears as we read on in the narrative. In the sixth day, when he creates... Man and woman in his own image. He puts the man asleep and he cuts the man. Cuts the man open and takes his rib out and fashions for the man, woman. And as men everywhere can attest, God is truly a master of his craft. And he brings the woman to the man and presents to him his wife. And as the narrative continues, the man and his wife are told to take dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth. And no sooner are they given that command when in chapter 3, the man and his wife sin, they eat of the forbidden fruit, and more cutting occurs. Cutting of the tragic variety. The man and his wife are cut off from the presence of God. And so what does God do? He begins His saving work. He cuts down an animal so that the man and his wife can be clothed. And their shame can be covered. And he allows them to live. Live a very long time. Several centuries in fact. And they are still fruitful. And they can still multiply. And men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And mankind grows on the face of the earth. But also with that growing in population. There is a growth in wickedness. And so God cuts man off from the face of the earth. The cutting continues. And not only is evil wiped out. But God in his grace. You could say cuts for himself one family headed by Noah, and so mankind can continue to dwell on the earth and enjoy fellowship with God. Once again, population of mankind grows, men begin to fill the earth, and out of this, out of this mankind, we see God choose Abraham. Abraham, the pagan. Abraham, the unbeliever. That through him, all the tribes of the earth would be blessed. And the mark of this was the cutting away of the male foreskin. More cutting. To identify a peculiar people. And as Abraham finally uh, family grows, he becomes Israel, this nation that was promised to come out of him. And what would be the sign? The sign of circumcision, this cutting away. And then he would give them a law. A law cut from stone. Though Israel said they would obey this law they disobeyed and what happened they were cut off from the land but not without a promise and this promise would involve more cutting he would the lord in his mercy would bring about a new covenant where he would circumcise the hearts of his people he would cut around their hearts and remove all the sin and corruption and give them new life give them new hearts so that they would be responsive to him and obey his commands and love and trust him And all these promises, all this cutting, anticipated the most important truth of all. That Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, and the Father's supreme act of love and grace toward man, would give himself up for his people. That Christ himself would have himself cut open so that those who were formerly cut off could be united in love through faith to God. And that act of love, men, is the standard of how we love our wives. That just as Christ laid himself down for his bride, so we are willing to be cut open to lay our lives down for our wives and by extension our families. Yes, we are the heads of our household. Yes, we are the leaders of our wives and families and yet with this leadership comes a great responsibility and this responsibility holistically is expressed primarily through godly Christ-like love and this love is expressed in a variety of ways and we discussed that in depth last Lord's Day and a man truly must be all of these things and not so that he can merely feel like he has some purpose in life, not so that he can feel good about himself, but so that he can free his wife to fulfill her God-given calling and purpose. The man not only bears the glory of God, but also becomes a channel of the glory of God. Meaning that in our pursuit of glorifying God by faithfully loving our wives, our example is seen and other people may give God glory. And yet this is how we are called lead it's the example we are called to set and so we continue in our study today we love our wives is interesting quote from Andrew Sandlin in his book creational marriage he points out that you don't you don't merely marry the one you love you love the one you marry there is something about love that is sustained throughout marriage that is the commitment of the man the godly man to his wife it's to love her and to love her well. And if we fail to uphold this directive, we are ultimately being not manly men, we are being effeminate men. We keep warning ourselves about that. And, our, and in our effeminacy, we give up our strength, which is an invitation to, for our women to be masculine. We're called not to give our strength to women. We'll talk more about that later. But rather to be the strength of our woman. To love, to cherish, to take dominion and build a life with. So that loving our wives means helping her fulfill her calling as a wife. And men, if we fail at this directive, the more difficult it will be for the wife to fulfill her calling as a woman in the home. And it will be difficult for her not to usurp your position as head of the household. Some introductory warnings so that they're said if you don't lead your wife and your family spiritually, then she will be tempted to take up that mantle because she will not want her children as spiritual orphans. Either that or she will simply follow your example and the kids will not be poured into it all. Neither shall we. Neither will she. So, say all this to emphasize the current crisis point in masculinity. And that is precisely why we go to the scripture and talk about love. Seems a little, you know, peculiar to us because love is typically thought of as more of a feminine quality, a caring, nurturing characteristic. But I'm talking about love this morning precisely because love is masculine. It is tender. Yes, it is nurturing, but it is a masculine directive. And yes, love is the greatest commandment so it should make sense to us that when it comes to the marriage union love is the man's primary responsibility and yet as men continue to abdicate headship in their home i think love is increasingly seen as a responsibility of the wife and this is where we say that throughout scripture men are, or women are never commanded to agape their husbands They are commanded to respect, to honor, to submit to their husbands as unto Christ, yet the duty to love falls to the husband. And if you love your wife well, men, it will be difficult for your wife not to honor and respect you. As we said before, the man who truly loves his wife should not have to loudly demand that she submit to his leadership. If you love well, if you love in a Christ-like consistent manner, there is something that, is, that, that allows the woman to naturally be drawn to submit to you. When we look in Ephesians 5, we can continue in our study of marriage, and our study of the man loving his wife. As we know, loving one's wife begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not there already in Ephesians 5... Please draw your attention to verse 25. Paul says this Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so we'll stop our reading right there and we. Spent a decent amount of time in this text uh, last Sunday. But one thing we have to note here, because we recognize the respective roles and duties in the household. We also understand that due to the fall, we often get some of those wires crossed when it comes to our responsibilities. Even after, immediately after the fall of man the Lord said, said to the woman that your husband will rule over you and your desire will be for him. And part of that desire, it is thought that there is a, an attempted usurpation of masculine authority in the home that the woman would be grabbing for authority. And one of the great hopes that we have through the Gospel is that when Christ died and rose again, He killed enmity between man and woman. That is why when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and obey His commandments as His Spirit empowers us, we are able to have what is called a joyful marriage. It's all because of Christ's work on the cross. And we say, who does the church resemble when all is said and done? Spotless and blameless. Just like Christ, the spotless and blameless Lamb of God who was slain and risen from the dead. That's, that's where we get our definition of love from. Love is pursuing the highest good of another. And so men, when you pursue the highest good of your wife, you are helping her pursue Christ-likeness. You are helping her to be more like Jesus. That is, you are assisting in this process of sanctification. You are aiding and abetting her sanctification so that she is cleansed by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such things so that she would be holy and blameless. Your directive, your goal for your wife is a reflection, a direct reflection of Christ's mission and purpose for his church. And that is why you love her. And God has equipped us for that task and so going over very quickly from what we went over last week and get us up to speed today we found four particular characteristics of godly love that a man is to express the first is of course is a love that provides it's a love that provides secondly is a love that protects we not only provide for our wives we protect them with our very lives It's also a love that pastors. If you are a man and you are married, you are called to be the teacher of your home. You are called to be the spiritual leader of your home. That is how you love your wife. Fourthly, it is a love that perfects. We just read about that in Ephesians 5. It's a love that seeks purity and sanctification, spiritual maturity, so that your wife is without spot or defect. And so that brings us to the fifth one. We kind of squeeze this one in here. There are six overall. But here's the fifth one. And I think this is a key component of love that is often overlooked, but don't miss it. We call this pursuing love. Love pursues. So, husbands, you are the primary pursuer of your wife in your relationship. I know times have changed. Men can be aloof. Men don't want to put themselves out there. But you are the pursuer. Highlighted this a couple Lord's days ago when we called you the initiator. You are called to initiate. You are called to speak up. You are called to be the one who pursues peace and restoration in your own household. So you are called to be the pursuing lover. This is to speak of love, not only as devotion and sacrifice. And we understand devotion and sacrifice are very important things. We can't understand love without those things. But we don't want to truncate love. We want to understand it in its fullness. So as glorious as love and sacrifice are, there's more to it. Because love is not merely a duty to perform, it is a desire to pursue. A desire to be one with. A desire to bless and to see, for, for the man to bless and see his wife flourish and enjoy that flourishing with his wife. This speaks of delight. One could even say this is the romantic component of love. See, not merely duty, that but love is something that you desire to do. Love is delight that you want to, you delight in the love you have for your wife. And you go out of your way to demonstrate that. First person we look to to see this pursuing kind of love. And I realize that with modern Christian lyrics, love is pursuit has gotten kind of sappy with climbing mountains and bashing down brick walls and whatnot. But the truth is, is that God does pursue His beloved. And we don't want to miss that. As early as Genesis, chapter 3, we see God pursuing with a question man where are you and of course what is man doing he's hiding he's hiding in the bushes yet that is what makes christian love distinct that makes christianity as a whole distinct right not that we search for god but that god purposefully searches for us searches for people who are running headlong to hell and destruction And yet, such is His love for us that He saves us from that destruction and brings us into fellowship with Himself through His Son. Primarily through the death of His Son. But He pursues. This is also expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to His own, the Gospel of John says, and His own did not receive Him. And yet, He he still carried out His saving work In Luke 19.10, we read this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was His mission in the first advent, was to seek and to save that which was lost. To come and find and redeem the lost sheep, and make Him His own, and to restore them from the fold. And so how does this play out in marriage? As sacred as this is, I think we can see this expressed in a couple of ways at least. I think the first is in romance its, itself. And we'll talk a little more deeply about this, romance and marriage and all the things that come with that. But the first is, is understand that love is, there's a romantic component. When you pursue your wife, gentlemen, you, you are to pursue her. That is, you are to woo her, to romance her, to remind her of the violence of your affections toward her. After all, the first time we see man speak it is in poetry. Bone of my bone flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. We can learn a thing or two from Adam. That this union this oneness between a man and a wife is put on glorious puts on glorious display the union that we have with Jesus Christ. We are reminded of this wonderful blissful marital love in the book of Proverbs we're reminded this of this drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well should your springs be dispersed abroad streams of water in the streets let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you so you see how there's a blending of the expressions of love here, this is not only romantic love, this is not only pursuing love this is protective love this is a man protecting his marriage in verse 18 here, we see, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. This is a good thing. We enjoy it and we enjoy it often. Look at the, the way the husband and wife relate to one another from Song of Solomon 1:15. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. There's a component of love within the marriage relationship where the wife is lovely. There is attraction and romance and exhilaration through marital love. There is desire and delight, all good things, to be enjoyed by faith and thanksgiving. So in the song of Solomon 2.13, my beloved responded and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our lands. Like spring has sprung. The, The birds are chirping. The bees are buzzing. The grass is green. It's a good time to be married. In verse 13, the fig tree has ripened its figs and the vines and blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. What a wonderful picture of marital joy and bliss. And you know, we come along some 2,000 years later and all the Beatles could manage was all you need is love. And, and this beautiful, deep poetry has been written for hundreds and hundreds of years. As much as we love and respect the Beatles, if you want to know about love, go to the Bible. (laughs) First is romance. Here's a second way that this pursuing love, and I would say continue to pursue this, that love may age well. Second way is this, in pursuit of, in, in a love that pursues in your household, and we, again, this is all linked together. What do we pursue in our household? Well, we pursue peace. We pursue restoration, reconciliation, forgiveness. Whenever that is needed, we pursue stability in our household. True Christ-like love in the household is a love that stabilizes, is a love that holds the marriage in the household firmly in place and guards it from any threats, whether internally or externally. Externally. But this goes back to this very important truth that we talked about, men. That as men, as heads of your household, as lovers of your wives, you are the initiator. You pursue those things that achieve peace in your household. I said, even, even if you are the one wronged, you are the one who initiates contact. You are the one who shepherds your wife to peace under your roof. So that is love that pursues. Sixthly and finally, and this will take the bulk of our study this morning. I think we'll get through it. But this one, keep in mind, characterizes the previous five. Okay. So the previous five characteristics of love are all going to be linked to this one. And this one may be the most profound. It is what we would call persevering love. Persevering or preserving love so whether your love provides protects pastors perfects or pursues the idea of persevering love is that your love continues to do all of these things this underscores the commitment and perpetuity of marital love and as men as christian men we are men of commitment we understand our obligations we understand that we are called to persevere as delightful as marriage is, I have never once heard a man or a woman say that marriage is easy. Not once. Marriage can be difficult. And what a marriage takes is men with backbone, men with a spine, men who are able to persevere through the difficulties of marriage, whether those marriage are, where those marriage issues are interpersonal or just With the issues of life. Difficulties will come. But it is a blessing. It is a grace of life. That God has brought a man and a woman together. To face the the challenges and afflictions of life. As one. On a united front. Trusting God together. But in this man you are to lead. You are to be marked by your perseverance. By your steadfastness. By your. Desire to keep loving your wife and pouring into her. Now, some of you out there may ask me, well, are there exceptions to this? What if my wife does this or that? What if my marriage is so bad that it doesn't even resemble a marriage? And again, I don't want to spend the time this morning to qualify everything. I want to focus this morning, men, on our hearts and our attitudes toward our wives. Because there are going to be setbacks. There are going to be difficulties. In every area of life. And you don't have to be married long to know that that's true. That's why it's often said that the first year of marriage is the most difficult. You're kind of, as much as you're in love with each other, you're kind of getting used to, to one another's quirks. Things that you didn't see during the courtship process and now they just come out of nowhere. Like, where did this perfect person go that I married? Well, a lot of sanctification needs to happen. But this sanctification, as sanctification is a process. What is that characteristic that nurtures that process? It is perseverance. It is preservation. And we know that God preserves us. God sanctifies us. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So that is our fundamental example. As God is faithful to complete this work of salvation, so is the man. So does the man persevere to continue to adorn this precious work of marriage. Note how Jesus loves us. In John 10, I think this was one of the best pictures of that, of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 15, we read this. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. We've talked about that before. Does the way you love your wife bring her refreshment? Does it strengthen her? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So you notice the characters that are in this already. You have Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, You have the hired hand, you have the thieves and robbers, you have the sheep, and then you have the wolves. I mean, Gentlemen, we can be either one of those. We can completely turn our backs on our marriage, betray all trust and faith in our wives, and be like a wolf. We can be a thief and a robber. We can rob all joy and rest from our wives if we fail to love them, if we fail to be like the good shepherd. Or we can be merely a hired hand. That might be the worst of them all. Just a, again, a lazy, careless, passive, effeminate man who just sits and watches the world go by and figures, I have all these things, I'm fine. I don't really need to care for my wife. She's doing just all right. Yet what are, who are we called to mirror though? Who are we called to emulate? The good shepherd. So that those under our care can find Pasture and to protect them from the thieves and the robbers. To watch them where the hired hand fails, because they don't really care for the sheep. To be on guard against the wolves. To be a danger and a threat to them. That they would be afraid. But look at the example that Jesus himself sets. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Think about that, men. Do your wives know you? Do they know you care for them? Do they know you are watching over their souls? Do they know that you are loving them even if they have to lay down their very lives? Even if you have to lay down your life? Cuz Jesus lays his life down for the sheep. And so, this point is attached to Ephesians 5. If you want to go to the end of this part of the passage in Ephesians chapter 5, we read on and we see I think an example of persevering love. In verses 28-29 through we read this, "...so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." Because we are members of His body. So once again, he's using the example of Christ's devotion and sacrificial love toward His bride, the church. It says, "...men, do likewise." And he uses the example of our own bodies. We love our own wives as our own bodies. That's the most, I think, clear example. I think, obviously, um, um, unless unless you have some serious medical issues, look around, men, take care of their bodies. We Try to make sure we get plenty of rest, hopefully plenty of sunshine, food, water, all those things that are necessary to having a good life. We look out for ourselves. Kind of the same line of thinking as love your neighbor as you love yourself. I think we sometimes do not give ourselves enough credit as to how much we love ourselves. Oh no, I deny myself. I hate myself. There's so many bad things about me. Oh, cut it out. You love yourself. You look out for number one plenty. You take care of yourself. You cherish yourself. You nurture yourself. Interesting. This word cherish comes from the word which means to warm. So you keep yourself sheltered, safe, warm. You keep from getting cold. And in the same sense, we 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 take care of our wives. We treasure them. We cherish them. We keep them warm. We nourish them. Just as we feed our own bodies, we nourish our wives. This word nourish is also used later on in the book of Ephesians. Chapter six, verse four says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That same word there is used as bringing them up. It's to nourish them. So this is an ongoing process. That's why we call it persevering and preserving love. You are preserving your wife. You are persevering. You are committed to loving her as you do yourself. Says he who loves his own wife Loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh but perishes. And once again pointing to that example. Just as Christ also does the church. Though Christ is the head. He cares for his body. Cares for the church. And we are all members together. And so we love our wives. Another. This is another struggle I think we have. You know when we talk about persevering. I think we do so. Again, not really understanding what perseverance what perseverance takes and what it looks like. And I think this is a struggle for men. See, here's where we find, I think, the struggle of our day. We do struggle in perseverance. And I think we, I think we struggle primarily through what is known as, here it goes, if you've read It's Good to Be a Man, you'll know what I'm talking about. Struggle with what is called White knight syndrome or simply white knighting. You know, we typically think that that is a virtuous, chivalrous thing, right? Oh, the, the, the knight clad in white on his, on his noble steed comes galloping to my rescue. But it is used today in the pejorative. It's not seen as a good thing. It is defined as this in, in, in seems a few places that white knighting is defined as men who derive their value from defending damsels in distress against evil forces. They are willing to engage in a fantasy to achieve this, imagining evil women to be damsels and good men to be dragons. So you note that white knighting already introduces us to a distorted view of masculinity and a distorted view of femininity. And so we would say, yes, it is, I mean, there are such things as damsels in distress. You know, we are to honor our wives as the weaker vessel. Speaking, which speaks primarily to, I think, physical weakness. There may be some emotional weakness involved, but I think primarily to physical weakness, and that is why we protect our wives. But we also have to persevere in that. So we understand that defending damsels, damsels that are truly in distress, is a good thing. But there is a way of defending damsels in distress that is weak and ungodly. And note how this definition says evil women. It says if we characterize all women to be damsels in distress. And we look at good men to be the dragons that are slain. So that means, so so white knighting in a sense is actually attacking good men in order to protect evil women. Or you could say in the case of Christian marriage where we basically cave to our wives ungodly words or ungodly emotions or ungodly thinking. And it does happen. This is a hard teaching, but we must accept it. And we must continue to pass it on. In some ways, it looks like this. It's when a man caves to his wife's emotion, emotions or goes back on a decision because that decision or that course of action will simply make her mad at him. And of course, we understand that this takes a lot of wisdom and can be applied case by case where we have to discern as leaders of our household when certain decisions may actually harm our wives or our families and know when her counsel presents a better path forward. That is such a thing. But what I'm talking about is when men have no conviction, they have no spine, they have no intestinal fortitude, and when they when they charge into battle, when they have a course of action, especially one based on biblical truth, and their wife objects to it or their wife lets her husband know that she is displeased with that and reacts in an ungodly way via, you know, anger or the silent treatment or whatever accompanies that. The man immediately buckles. He immediately folds. He immediately loses all of his conviction so that his wife will be quote unquote happy. Yes, men do this and it needs to stop. <laughs> and, and sometimes, men, that means against all popular conventional wisdom, what that means often, men, is being able to tell your wife, no. That based on your leadership as informed and established by the Word of God, that you are determined to a particular course of leadership in a particular course of action and there's going to be a lot of instances when this happens you're a married man leadership means decision making that's a hard thing some decisions are easier than others but many of the decisions you're going to make in life are going to be difficult and sometimes it's going to mean going forward against the sensibilities of your precious bride And so you're going to have to have the conviction and spiritual wherewithal, and most importantly, the trust in God to stand by those decisions as you move forward. See, the thing with white knighting is that even though it seems noble on the exterior, it ultimately embraces a counterfeit masculinity. As one author writes, White knights have trouble identifying with the masculine. They tend to be risk-averse and prefer security to freedom. They want, they want everything and everyone to be safe. Men like this are simply man pleasers. As long as everyone is okay, as long as everyone is content, and as long as no one is complaining, that, that, that's the right, that's the right way, surely, right? Based on that outcome, everyone's quiet, everyone's content. When the scriptures are screaming at you that no, this is ungodly, This is foolish. This is unwise. This is not the course of action to pursue. I mean, you look at the people in Scripture that made the biggest difference were men that didn't do what pleased everyone. They're men that trusted in God and obeyed His Word, even when everyone around them disagreed and said otherwise. And so what happens with these white knights is that they tend to avoid struggle, conflict, conflict. One author writes that they value facts over feelings, and as we know, of course, facts don't care about your feelings. They seek ultimately the approval of women rather than the approval of God. And this dysfunction perpetuates this cluelessness about the distinctive biblically uh, ordained roles of men and women. And so what this and so I think the fallout of this is pretty grave. What this and all the time. These white knights believe that they are truly masculine. They believe that they are truly men. And what really does end up happening is that it makes them suspicious of godly men. And so rather than these great opportunities, even in disagreements of iron sharpening iron, they evade, they hide. They hide like Adam behind the bushes, unwilling to take responsibility for anything, unwilling to make hard decisions unwilling even to confront their wives regarding their response. And so what occurs out of this is that they, these white knights join the modern woman in despising true masculinity. And this all comes predominantly from a fear of women, ultimately a fear of what other people think. That's not freedom at all. That is, that is self-enslavement. To be shackled by the opinions of others. To say, I think this is what needs to happen, but because I am afraid of how my wife is going to react, I will do otherwise. When you know what the right thing to do is. Men, it's one of the hardest obstacles to overcome in marriage. But I promise you, you will see growth when you are able to stand on the truth, even though even though your wife may for a time have a hard time accepting it. This article I was reading goes on to say this, a disordered hierarchy is central to the war on gender and the white knight is an unwitting pawn in Satan's western campaign. Remember, the enemy primarily deals in counterfeits, not opposites. And the white knight is the perfect counterfeit Because on the exterior, he looks like a true man. But inside, he's a baby. He's a boy. Without conviction. Listen to this conclusion. Thinking he is wise, he becomes a fool. Presuming himself a player. See, this is what white knights do. They quit when things get hard. And there's always going to be hard times in marriage. But our inclination as godly men is to always be this. A move toward renewing our hearts with God's grace and provision and head back out into battle. All the while encouraging our wives and shepherding them faithfully. See, even when they disagree with us, even they may, even when they may be mad at us for making a particular decision, that does not mean leaving them out in the dark. Or, as Ephesians 5 says, leaving them out in the cold. No, we continue that nourishment. We continue that warmth and cherishing. I mean, guys, we... It was said in this article I was reading, the only path forward is repentance. And that's really it. We live in an age of quitters. Where our inclination is to always do the easiest thing. When the easiest thing is just to complain and fold and then wash our hands of the situation. It takes courage to tell your wife and others, no, this is wrong. God's word says this. There's some, even some good examples of this in scripture. Think about uh, Jacob and Rachel. Leah's, Leah's popping out babies left and right. And Rachel, frustrated, comes to Jacob and says, give me children or I die. And we don't see Jacob say, you know, honey, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm so sorry. You know, you're right. You deserve children. I'll go and tell God that he's mistaken. I'll go, I'll be polite. But, but, but what does Jacob do? What does he say? Am I God? Am I God? It's a hard teaching, but I think what Jacob is helping Rachel understand, and this is a hard thing for us to teach as well, but we have to, is that some things are out of our control. Everything is in the hands of God and God will afflict us with some things. He will bless, but he will afflict and I'm sure that that was the last thing that Rachel wanted to hear from Jacob. And yet Jacob, as flawed as he was, stood his ground. I would give him kudos for that. You know, you think about his, uh, his grandpa Abraham, as godly of a man as Abraham was. What did he do? He sold his wife out, threw her under the bus. Oh, now tell them that you're my sister because... If they see you, you know, they'll, they'll kill me because you're a beautiful woman. I mean, talk about a simp. Talk about a man who just buckled whenever pressure came. That was Abraham white knighting. Yet here we find Jacob at least giving truth to his wife. I think there's a clear example of this. When, when, when Job is afflicted by the devil himself and most of us will not, we will not experience that in our life. Where Satan specifically will direct his attention at us and come and kill our kids and afflict us with boils so that we're we're using pot shards to scrape them off. Most of us are never going to endure that in our lifetime. And eventually Job's wife comes to him and says, Job, just curse God and die. And do we see Job saying, you know, wife, you're, you're right. (laughs) You got a good point. I really should have considered that. You know, I should maybe I should just curse God and roll over and die so I go to heaven and I can put an end to this suffering. No, he says, "You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we not accept from God both good and evil?" See, that is how a manly man, that is how a godly man talks to his wife. He is willing to tell her You are talking like a foolish woman talks. That's hard to do. But a godly man is willing to do that. For a godly man, it is more, much more important to defend the glory of God than it is to defend the honor of his wife. The glory of God is what matters most. And I'm not saying that there are never appropriate times where we have to defend and protect the honor of our wife. But part of persevering love is directing our wives toward seeing the sovereign hand and power of God, but to also see the sovereign grace of God. And I would say if Job's wife lived, she she saw exactly that. That even though Job wasn't picture perfect in his response to God, that God returned his suffering with grace and multiplied him. Restored his fortunes, restored his offspring so that he had godly, so he could, so he could raise up godly offspring. And that's what a godly man does, not a white knight. A godly man is constantly pointing his wife to the sovereign hand, sovereign grace of God, even if it means telling her you're wrong, even if it means telling her you are talking like a foolish woman. Remember, uh, this really afflicts us. I think this. We really have to be be aware of it, guys. Um, I remember uh, these were dark times in ministry, and I remember having one one gentleman. Don't worry, it wasn't Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church. It was an earlier time. And I had a, a particular gentleman whose whose wife was uh, struggling with certain things, uh, primarily with me, and you know he would. He would call me up on the phone. We'd meet for coffee or meet at his house and it happened multiple times. And he would always start a sentence with, my wife and I have a problem with this. Call his wife Karen. Karen and I, Karen and I are really struggling with this. Karen and I have a problem with you. Karen and I have noticed this. And I just think, bro, you You and Karen have a problem with this, or just Karen has a problem with this. And it turns out, Karen had a problem with it. And it was, and it was so troublesome and very sad, actually, because this man was a friend, we got along very well, and yet, due to his white knighting, he became, in a sense, a spiritual nomad. He couldn't stay at a church seemed like they were always moving on from one church to another, but it was because his wife always had a problem, and he never stood up to his wife and said, you're talking like a foolish woman. We are committed. Right? We're going to dig our heels in. We're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to commit to the body of Christ. And that's the kind of men we need. And so to sum this up, now that we know all about the white knight few things to keep in mind is that godly men persevere in love even when their wives are unreasonable. Men, you should write this down. This is for you. Persevere even when she is unreasonable. And what I mean by that is when your wives are using emotions as authoritative rather than the word of God. When they feel a certain way or when they have, you're going to love this, when they have a peace about something. Sometimes we have peace about a peace about something that we shouldn't have a peace about at all. Things that should disturb us. As a Christian man, you are called to take every thought captive to the word of God and shepherd your wife to that same blessed captivity. Men persevere even when she's unteachable. We both go through this. There are times in our marriage where we simply don't want to hear it. That is one of the hardest things in marriage. There are seasons when you as a husband don't want to hear it. When you as your wife doesn't want to hear it. And yet, as a husband, as a godly man, you have to say it. Continue shepherding her. Continue nurturing her. Be faithful. Men persevere even when she is untrusting. Perhaps she has a hard time with trust. Perhaps there came along a time and you broke that trust and you have to rebuild trust. I think this is ultimately true when she is having a hard time trusting God. Just like Job's wife, hard times come along and you have to point her to the unfailing trustworthiness and faithfulness of the Lord. That the one who saved her has not left her he's not departed her he's not forsaken her and so you show her that trustworthiness by trusting the lord and continue to walk with him even through the most difficult times because there's going to be times okay you're going to live your lives together right you rise together you go to bed together you're going to struggle with a lot of stuff okay you might struggle with trouble in the church you might struggle with loss of friendships you might struggle with childlessness but you got to show her that you trust the lord and be a godly man. (laughs) I debated whether or not to include this one. Men persevere even when she is untouchable. We just talked about romance, right? Sometime, love is not in the air, (laughs) Cupid's quiver is empty as it were, or uh, fletching fell off the arrow. Those are difficult times in marriage as well, but as a Wise man once told me, get after it. Continue pursuing your wife. Continue loving her. Continue showing her how she is lovely and desirable. Persevere in that. Persevere even when she's untouchable. Persevere even when she is inconsolable. That, men, will probably be the most difficult times in your marriage is when when the various sorrows of life afflict your wife and you just have to sit next to her I don't know why this makes me so emotional. Um, Sit next to her and say absolutely nothing. So those are my five closing reasons. There is much more to say, but uh, looks like we've got enough material for next Lord's Day. So in all these things, men, whether you are pursuing your wife, whether you are pastoring her, right? Whether you're protecting her, whether you're providing for her, whether you're doing any of these things. Make sure that love is ironclad. Make sure that it perseveres. I think a good passage to close is from our Scripture reading. First Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Now listen to this, verse 7. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And as I love to point out, the Greek word there for never, very interesting word. It means never. But it points to the value of persevering love. And we look ultimately to Jesus Christ. Look to Christ the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him bore the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Men, in whatever way you love your wife, make sure that love persists. Lord, thank you again so much for your love for us. We thank you that your love for us never fails and that as husbands, We can persevere in that love. We can persevere because we know that you are the one who gives us strength. We can persevere because we have that supreme example in Christ our Savior who although we were unlovable, although we were rebellious and wayward, you gently restored us. You laid your life down for us. Help us, God, to by faith, follow that example. And we know we couldn't do it unless you gave us the strength to. Lord, I pray for not only myself, but every man in here. We, we know we face so many, so many cultural challenges, so many temptations to counterfeit godly, biblical manliness. We struggle to sometimes Show faithful love to our wives. And so the easiest thing to do is to fold and to put on the cape of a coward that masquerades as a godly man. But to be men that have no courage, that have no strength, that have no conviction. And Lord, sadly enough, that ultimately have no love for You or for our wives, but we play pretend and i pray lord that we would we would throw away that the armor of the white knight and put on the armor of god and to love our wives faithfully even if that means being contrary even if that means saying no even if that means saying the hard things and there's so many more examples we could give there's so many more scriptures we could we could go to uh, but lord we trust that the truth revealed today will Help us gird up our loins and be faithful lovers of our wives as we pursue them, as we uh, cultivate godly romance and delight and desire in our marriage, that we would have only eyes for our bride and that we would be faithful. Lord, I pray that our love would be of the persevering kind, that even though setbacks and afflictions are inevitable, we would have the courage to stand in the face of all satanic onslaughts and simply trust in You. And that in doing so, we would also guide the hearts and minds of our wives and also our children to take every thought captive to the Word of God, to trust Your process, to trust Your wisdom and not our own that we would mature to godliness, that we would mature to Christ-like beauty, that you would be glorified in our homes. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen.